Yes, it's time again for Tuesday Home Time with Jen Bartlett. The sun is shining, the plants are growing, the birds are singing. Let's make the most of the tail end of what we can only hope will be the end of lockdown. But before that, how you can contribute to an appeal to help the women farmers of Gaza recovered from the yet another Israeli onslaught. Nick Rose from Sustain is coordinating the appeal and will explain all. For a change, good news from the Philippines. Courageous journalist and publisher is a joint winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and activist Peter Murphy will talk about her work and what the award will mean. A different Gene Ethics Network report this month. Instead, a focus on the man who has been at the helm since 1988, and that's Bob Phelps. And what neoliberalism is responsible for in regard to the pandemic, and can we see a way out, with Debbie Brennan from Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. But first, none other than Kevin Healy, and we'll see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane, listener, when, as we bemoaned last week, our hearts went out. Oh, just before I go there, this will stun you, listener. Every day this week, hard as it is to believe, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin had a sensation, sensation front page attacking the evil pejorative Dan state socialist government. I told you you'd be stunned. Anyway, our hearts went out to poor Gladys. They certainly should go out to the people of New South Wales, given what replaced her. As we said, Paul Gladys resigned the same day the Troubler was he capitalist review named her the, with three other state supremos, the most powerful person in the country. Bit of bad luck and unfortunate timing for the capitalist review as well. Thankfully, of course, there's absolutely no chance it'll give the annual most powerful to the genuine powerful, the puppeteers in the corporate boardrooms and down at the stock exchange who control the strings of those they do tell us are the most powerful. On Paul Gladys's demise, a few people who wouldn't have a clue what they're talking about, like human and civil rights advocates, suggest the corruption stroke integrity body the government plans sometime in the course of the next 10 parliaments. When it promised one during the last election, it forgot to add, inadvertently forgot, it planned to ease it in over the next 10 parliaments. Suggests the body lacks a bit of teeth, including that it can't be retrospective. A body with real powers presents a serious threat to democracy, as Hayseed and Cheapshit Party Supremo Barnacle pointed out. A Spanish Inquisition. And who wants to see Paul Gladys burnt at the stake? Uh, but surely, Barnacle, you want an anti-corruption integrity body to have real integrity. Well, we certainly do, and like you know, we support it being integral that it can't nail us. Um, but integrity and integral aren't the same thing. Oh, yes, they are from where I'm standing, uh, but, but what's wrong with retrospectivity? After all, you set up inquiries into the socialist government like pink bats, and you set up royal commissions and inquiries into long-ago matters involving little Billy Shorten Ambition and Julia Gallinghart. Exactly. You've answered, you know, like your own question. Integral to the greatest little economic order, of course, is we are meeting our legal tax obligations. 
So why is it considered big news when every couple of years more revelations emerge of the world's filthiest rich of the filthy rich and autocrats using tax havens and convoluted financial mazes to ensure they do meet their legal tax obligations? It would only be news if they weren't. And look, I'm sick and tired of whingers who are never satisfied, like the new Samoan supremo Fiame Naomi Mata Afa, who kicks dirt in Trublawazi's face despite Scomo going out of his way at great expense to protect Samoa, complaining that Trublawazi has to do lots more to address the march of climate change across the Pacific. For goodness sake, what business is it of hers? Science, not silence, she argued, should be the reaction to the latest apocalyptic report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if there is such a thing, that is climate change, not the panel, and if the science was proven, does she seriously think Scummo and Barnacle and the team would continue to do nothing about it? Of course they wouldn't, and this after Scummo has committed to untold billions on nuclear-powered submarines to protect Samoa and our Pacific neighbours from the aggressive threat of evil, evil China. OK, OK, waters around Trublawazi and Samoa are rising faster than the world average, but surely that's her business, not ours, as she hides behind the flimsy excuse that places like Samoa are making very little contribution to their own drowning. And why should we commit economic suicide as one of the world's great fossil exporters when the prices of oil, gas and coal are at record levels? Make hay while the sun shines and shines and shines hotter and hotter and and hotter. Thankfully, the smart ones are cashing in. Headline Thursday, investors flock to oil, gas and coal amid surge in demand. Does Samoa expect those wise investors not to make a killing? Uh, well, maybe killing is the wrong word in the circumstances, but, but speaking of protecting the Pacific from evil China, the great liberty, freedom and democracy loving protectors of peace, the quid, no, no, hang on, hang on, the, the, the quad, the quad, the US of the UN of the US of the world and good Japan and good India and true blue Aussie bowling along on the US of coattails agreed to spend heaps on infrastructure projects across the Pacific. Oh, at last they are showing concern for their neighbours, I hear you say. Well, no, not exactly. They want to counter the influence of evil Chinese Belt and Road Initiative investment across the Pacific. Hope our neighbours like that ungrateful Samoan Supremo don't view the newfound interest with cynicism. On such matters, we commented last week on Barnacle's brilliant comment that he would support zero emissions by 2050 as long as it didn't affect coal and agriculture. Well, this week, his hayseed and sheepshit colleague Fossils Minister Keith Pitt-Pony, obviously out to impress his great leader, proposed a $250 billion loan facility for the government to become financier of last resort for the coal industry as the super-efficient private sector deserts it, saying his party could then support zero emissions by 2050 if the government supported his proposal, which would help with the transition. Presumably a transition from coal to, well, coal. We look forward to their contribution this week.
All this, of course, assumes the planet will still exist in 2050 and the Minister for Environmental Destruction, Susan Lees and Driggs, got into the spirit of saving the planet by announcing yet another expansion of yet another coal mine at Tarmore in New South Wales, allowing for an extra 33 million tonnes of coal to be mined. But, and that should work wonders for the zero emissions target. Oh, but then, of course, we don't have a zero emissions target, so it doesn't matter. More good news for those making a killing out of record fossil prices. Their dear little children are also enjoying the kindness and generosity of government as tax office figures this week showed the most exclusive private schools reaped $750 million in JobKeeper payments. They also announced neat little profits. So let's hope that government largesse provided a few extra playing fields and tennis courts and swimming pools and, and state-of-the-art libraries and technology, all the things your average state primary and secondary school enjoys. And while we can't quite comprehend the difference, which thankfully big economic guru Josh Friedemarsbergs could comprehend as an expert in these matters, the private tertiary sector also reaped millions in JobKeeper, while public universities and tertiary institutions were somehow not eligible. No doubt there's a logical explanation for all that. Oh no, let's be honest, we already know the answer, the illogical explanation. Apropos of not much, a steam supermarket giant Woolworths Trillions shows it really cares for dear little children by offering these bricks kids can annoy the hell out of their parents to collect. You get a brick or two with every $30 you spend. And when they've spent enough $30, the kids can make their very own Woolworths Trillions little supermarket. And the ads show just how over-the-top, fun, 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 excited this makes the little dears. And these are the same people who tell us evil communists brainwash dear little children. Why the former vehement anti-communist B.A. Santa Maria would tell us communists brainwash dear little children in the same breath as demanding state aid for Catholic schools without even blushing. Also not blushing, and as I said last week, great news for us when we take to the streets support from unlikely sources like one of Lord Rupert's late columnists under the headline Brutal actions of our police are indefensible, so she'll be supporting us in future actions. As I've no doubt she will be supporting the so-called Red Union. Very clever. See, Red, it supports the socialist cause. Well, the national socialist cause, supporting the individual freedom of workers to pass on little gifts like coronavirus to their co-workers. That seems to be their major industrial cause, but it's important as states accept that it's the, eco the economy, stupid, that the economy is far more important than death and illness. And it's so encouraging to see a real union accept that and stand up for real freedom. And let's get rid of seat belts, bike helmets, all those attacks on our freedoms while we're at it. And we know they must be on the right track when the Lord Rupert lackeys support them to the hilt against the constabulary Lord Rupert normally, well, past tense now, aren't we lucky he'll now be supporting us, normally supports, unlike the daily P1 attacks Lord Rupert is forced to make on our behalf against the evil state government that has tried but has probably lost putting community health ahead of private profit. Shame, evil government, shame. Finally... Interesting, too, that Lord Rupert and the media for profit generally, when workers take industrial action, such as currently delivery drivers and maritime workers because their caring employers refuse to negotiate, 
and in the former case, gig entrants like Amazon profit levels undercut wages and conditions, profit unlevels when the media for profit lot tell us how evil these workers are in destroying our Christmas, and quote the caring employers denouncing the evil unions for their selfish, avaricious behaviour because the caring employers are 100% innocent as all they've done is refuse to negotiate and advocated a little bit of cutting on wages and conditions. Summed up beautifully by the Minister for Something or Other, Stuart Robot, who denounced evil union action as disaster, chaos, are you kidding me? Brilliant insight showing why he deserves a ministerial salary. My word, there's some deep thinkers among that lot, aren't there? Good afternoon. And that's Kevin Healy for yes, another week. But don't forget tomorrow morning at nine o'clock for City Limits. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. In the small strip of land which is Gaza, life is precarious, a situation which increases with each bombing and aerial assaults by Israel, targeting homes, schools, health clinics, hospitals, and as well as we'll hear today, leading to millions of dollars of destruction of vital food supplies and infrastructure, including greenhouses, crops, vegetables, and livestock. And half of these farms and enterprises are owned and managed by approximately 1,500 women. For a number of years, these women have been coordinating and networking under the Gaza Urban Peri-Urban Agricultural Platform, GUPAP, and here in Australia, a number of groups have organised a solidarity campaign to raise $25,000 to support a number of women at this time of high need, still recovering from the May bombings. One of the groups involved is Sustain, and I'm speaking today with Nick Rose, who is the Executive Director. Nick, first, could you identify Sustain, how you work, where to and to what ends? Sustain is a national sustainable food systems organisation. Our mission is to design and build better food systems across Australia. These are food systems that are life-enhancing rather than life-destroying. 
We were established in 2016. We're a legally incorporated uh, not-for-profit company limited by guarantee. Uh, we're also a registered health promotion charity with the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. And our charitable purpose is to reduce the burden of chronic dietary-related disease and ill health on the Australian population through holistic, integrated food systems interventions. Now, what we're talking about today is Palestine, in particular Gaza. How does this happen for you? Because you're talking about work in Australia. That's right. However, we have connections to Palestine and to Gaza. Personally, I travelled to Ramallah and the West Bank uh, in Palestine in 2015 to attend an international critical geographers conference that was held that year in Ramallah. Various presentations about the impacts of the occupation and what that meant for people living across Palestine, you know, the decades of occupation and the dismantling and fraying of critical infrastructure and services across Palestine. I uh, visited a Bedouin camp in the Jordan Valley, for example, and um, after hearing presentations about the uh, discriminatory allocation of water for agriculture, uh, went to visit Bedouin uh, camp and heard firsthand from the tribe's people exactly what that meant uh, in practice, as well as various other uh, presentations about the, the impacts of the occupation. So that had a, a personal uh, lasting impression and very powerful impression on me. And then um, from our organisation's perspective, we have been working in the field of urban agriculture and urban food systems since our commencement in 2016. I've had a longer interest in this area as a Churchill Fellow, uh, travelling to the Midwest of the United States, to Canada and to Argentina in 2014 to uh, meet and uh, understand the potential and reality of initiatives to address critical food security issues and livelihood needs for urban populations, particularly in disadvantaged areas such as Detroit and Chicago and Michigan and many parts of Argentina. So Sustain um, has now held three national urban agriculture forums where we have brought together presenters from around Australia and, and indeed internationally exploring different aspects of urban food systems and urban agriculture and the many benefits and positive changes that they can bring about for urban populations. And at the second of those forums that was held in February 2018 at the William Angus Institute, where I also have a role as a teacher in the Bachelor of Food Studies and Master of Food Systems, we... Uh, received an invitation from a Gazan organisation, the Gaza Urban and Peri-Urban Agriculture Network, to present about their work, uh, which we were able to facilitate via a uh, live stream presentation. So Ahmed Surani is the founder and coordinator of GUPAP, is the acronym, Gaza Urban and Peri-Urban Agriculture Platform, uh, presented to our audience in, uh, in Melbourne uh, in February 2018. So we had that, uh, that connection there. And then in May this year, following the intense bombardment of Gaza by the Israeli military, uh, Ahmed uh, reached out to us, as he did to other international organisations, uh, seeking uh, support and solidarity. Since that approach, uh, which came at the end of May this year, we've been in di weekly dialogue and discussion uh, with, with Ahmed and his colleagues 
from Gaza together with the allied organization here, the Global Gardens of Peace, that has uh, uh, led us to jointly formulate a crowdfunding campaign where we are making a call to uh, all people in Melbourne and indeed across Australia and internationally who uh, appreciate the great difficulties under which uh, people in Gaza are, are living to support this initiative where uh, the call has come directly from the people on the ground in Gaza, the coordinators of the of GUPAP where they've been working with women-owned agri-enterprises, small-scale women-owned primary production and small-scale food processing businesses in the Gaza Strip who are wanting to achieve greater food security and food sovereignty for their communities and for Palestine to, to rebuild and become uh, successful, viable, small-scale women-owned agri-enterprises uh, into the future. So that's what this campaign is about and that's how it came about. Just before we go on to Gaza, what did you find out about agriculture in the West Bank. Is urban agriculture a feature of the West Bank or have they got more broader areas to grow food? The, the, the conference that I attended, uh, the main focus was on the impacts of the, of the occupation um, in terms of people's movement and um, economic activity. It wasn't specifically about agriculture. But we, as I said, we, we had a visit out to the Jordan Valley where it's, it's uh, more what we'd understand in Australia, I guess, as, as rural or, or, or regional agriculture. But certainly, certainly there is, uh, there is you know, urban agriculture, small-scale uh, market gardening, um, keeping of you know, small-scale livestock, poultry and so on taking place in the West Bank as indeed there is in, in Gaza. But the reality is that there's a, a very high level of import dependency, food import dependency, so the aspiration for self-determination, self-provisioning, food security and food sovereignty is, is not being met uh, currently. Well, moving on to GUPAC, um, tell us a bit more about the organisation and how long it's been in operation. GUPAC has been in operation for, for several years now. Uh, launched in 2013, it uh, described itself as being a multi-stakeholder interactive and participatory forum, uh, bringing together key actors involved in the development of a resilient Palestinian agriculture sector in the Gaza Strip, currently made up of 80 members, including national and local government institutions, NGO civil society institutions, women, organisations and cooperatives and activists. That's the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum that's the focus of this campaign private businesses, research and educational institutions, microfinance institutions, urban women, agripreneurs, as I said, value chain forums. So um, they were hosted and facilitated by Oxfam RUAF um, in their first phase from 2013 to 17. So RUAF is the uh, International uh, Food Security and Urban Agriculture Forum that's based in the Netherlands. So they have been supported by international uh, cooperation agencies in their establishment phase, 2013-2017. Uh, and they've been building uh, their work uh, since then. They're focused on, um, as indeed Sustain is, on you know, direct on the ground capacity building and initiatives in terms of food production. But they're also very strongly focused on advocacy, uh, both to... Palestinian governmental organisations as well as the uh, international uh, community. So yes, they, they say that over the last uh, few years, 
they've um, been focusing on local local food policies, essentially local market-oriented urban and peri-urban agriculture development. They've done a, a, a needs assessment of national products in Gaza and, and Palestine dates, dairy products, uh, looking at um, the situation about trade and imports. They've been involved in the activation of the Committee for the Development of the Date Palm Sector. Um, they've done an advocacy campaign on women's rights in agriculture and food production. They've also been active in the Consumer Protection Association plan and launched a buy local campaign. So those are some of the some of the things that that Bupap, uh, has been undertaking over the last few years. Well, we're talking about the small scale women farmers, and I'd imagine that most of those women are the breadwinners of the family when you consider the situation that has been in Gaza for many years? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. So it's it's the case around the world, and um, listeners may already know this, but it's worth emphasising that, you know, we're, we're constantly told that the world population is growing, that, you know, we need to increase food to feed the growing global population, you know, need to boost production, need to embrace new technologies, Big, big agriculture, high tech, and and you know uh, new crops and and hybrid seeds, genetically modified seeds, and so on. That's uh, actually a bit of a distortion of the reality. When if we take into account all the food that is produced, what it's actually used for in terms of biofuels and animal feed, as well as the food that's wasted. Uh, right now, today, enough food is being grown globally to feed, you know, by some estimates, 10 or 11 billion people. That's one uh, key point to note. The other is that in terms of who actually feeds the world's population, uh, it is actually the small-scale peasant producers of the world who feed about 70% of the world's population with only uh, 25% of the world's uh, agricultural land. And the bulk of the small-scale and peasant producers globally are indeed women. Uh, women do the work of, uh, of both growing the food and, and feeding, feeding their communities. Uh, and they do so in difficult uh, circumstances with uh, insecure access to land and often encountering you know various forms of oppression and, and discrimination. Uh, you're absolutely right that's uh, that's very much the case in in Gaza, where there uh, by some estimates between a thousand to fifteen hundred women owned uh, businesses that are growing, producing food, processing food across a, a range of sectors. and uh, Gupap have been, uh, working uh, to uh, support the organisation, the collective organisation of that uh, group of small-scale women producers into their own forum, their own platform called the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum. They're bringing together about 100 women so far in, in that organised way and looking at, uh, at building their capacity, uh, doing training, uh, you know, supporting technical and managerial capacities as well as addressing... Um, psychosocial uh, questions, particularly in the context of, of violence and, and bombing, as well as looking at uh, supporting their uh, income generating capacity, providing support to um, equipment, to infrastructure, you know, to communications to help them to, to, build their, to build and operate their businesses. Well, with such a small area of land and such a big population, which is Gaza, could I say that some of these farms are more like an urban community garden that we'd have in Australia, or is that not correct? Yeah, small scale, certainly, you know, you and your listeners understand um, 
you know, the Gaza is the most densely populated uh, area in, in the world. So it's not like there's, you know, um, large tracts of, of land for, you know, for, for broadacre broad farming. Having said that, these are commercial enterprises where they're wanting to grow food for feeding people for production and scale. So it is a bit different to community gardens where typically the focus isn't necessarily so much on production um, as it is about, you know, self-provisioning and, and people making that connection with the, you know, with, with nature. You know, these are very much commercial businesses. And it's also worth saying that, you know, while the land area might be small in scale, if knowledge and capacity and use of that land is, is at a, a reasonable level, uh, quite a lot of food can actually be produced. And the other statistic that I was going to mention previously is that there are, according to the Food and Agriculture Organisation, about 800 million people globally engaged in urban agriculture and they produce about 20% of the world's food today. So um, these you know, small plots, small-scale uh, urban city-based uh, food-growing activities uh, do already generate uh, a lot of food and can be very productive, and particularly uh, in terms of healthy food, uh, vegetables, uh, vegetables especially. Yes, I think you're right in terms of the, you know, the small scale of their operations, but they're focused on you know, growing as much food as they can and being a commercially viable enterprise. So in that sense, they're distinct from community gardens. I've read that fish is one of the products that they are working on. With the restrictions on fishing for the people on the coast of Gaza, how do they produce their fish? There's the potential for aquaculture, so that's, that's fish farming. In fact, as part of these uh, discussions that we've been having with uh, the coordinators of GUPAP over these uh, past uh, weeks, with our allied organisation, Global Gardens of Peace, we've introduced them to an international solidarity network called Aquaculture Without Frontiers. So your listeners might have heard about, you know, Medicine Sans Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders and Engineers Without Borders, you know, these kinds of solidarity professional uh, networks and organisations. So there's one called Aquaculture Without Frontiers and an introduction has been made to GUPAP uh, to look at how um, an aqua, you know, one or more aquaculture operations can be uh, set up and operated in the context of Gaza. Is seed saving possible? Absolutely, it is possible. And in fact, one of the members of the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum, whose story we're going to feature on the Sustain website um, in the coming days, is in fact uh, uh, a seed saver herself. Uh, Hanadi, her name is, and, and her story will shortly be published on our website. In some instances, the... Agricultural companies, multinationals have got the seeds saving sewn up. How do they get round that? Yeah, that's that's a um, a really good point, Jan, and that's one of the you know the big problems in the food system that again your listeners may be already familiar with, but it's worth emphasising that when we're talking about the unsustainability and the inequality that really characterises the contemporary and global industrialised food system, it is exactly what you just put your finger on there, the concentration of ownership across uh, many of the key sectors of the food system that is the, the real issue here. And it is uh, facilitated by these growing uh, agri-business corporations, which increasingly are getting integration with you know, the financial sector and with the, the data and, and, and tech companies uh, as well. Um, there's been a number of studies uh, by 
International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. Uh, they came out with a report a couple of years ago called Too Big to Feed, uh, Impacts of Consolidation and Mega Mergers Across the Agri-Food Sector. And, and seeds is, uh, is one of the key sectors where uh, there's now about four, only four corporations globally that control 70 to 80%, I think it is, of the proprietary seed market. Now, the way around that is through peasant farmers, small-scale farmers, uh, working together to save their seed, their non-hybrid seed, their, their heritage varieties, like the Diggers Club here in uh, in Melbourne and Australia does, um, open pollinated seed and to create local seed banks um, of uh, indigenous uh, and heritage varieties and to share that seed freely uh, amongst their networks. And that's what they're that's what they're doing in Gaza. I'd imagine the beehives are pretty important. Absolutely, and in fact, we've already featured a story of a beekeeper, Samar, on our website. Beekeeping is extremely uh, important, and pollinators, uh, bees in particular, are absolutely critical to all you know the food security of everybody, um, not just in Gaza, but everybody around the world. They uh, pollinate at least a, a third of of all our food crops and species, and in particular the ones that keep us healthy, the, the fruits, the, the vegetables and the nuts depend on pollinators. So again, that's one of the problems of the industrialised food system. We've seen devastating collapses in pollinator uh, numbers and species uh, over the last few decades as the global chemical-based food system has really ramped up. So beekeeping, sustainable forms of agriculture, agroecology, these things are all absolutely uh, critical to a sustainable and resilient food system, both for Gaza and for, you know, for Australia for that matter and, and for all of us. And access to organic pest control? Yes, absolutely. Again, that's, uh, that's where knowledge and capacity building and training is so important. Working with the women-owned farmers and other agriculturalists in, in Gaza and Palestine in looking at agroecological techniques, working with nature rather than against it, and looking at integrated forms of, of pest management, polycultures, you know, permaculture techniques, those kinds of things where you've got not monocultures where, you know, they're, they're, those monocultures become breeding grounds for pests and, and diseases, but you're, you know, looking at intercropping, you've got uh, flowers amongst food crops, you know, provide habitats for beneficial predators and, and have those positive interactions across the whole system. Where does marketing come into it? Well, marketing is absolutely essential in terms of having viable um, viable businesses, and that's another key part of the capacity building and assistance that GUPAP has been uh, providing over these years and wants to continue and expand with the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum, you know, having, having local campaigns, educating consumers about the importance of supporting their local producers, particularly women-owned businesses, as uh, being in the long-term interest of everybody and having a a resilient and food secure system and one that isn't vulnerable to to high levels of import dependency. We've seen through the pandemic just how vulnerable our food system is with uh, these kinds of shocks and disruptions. That's only going to increase according to uh, most uh, models and predictions as the uh, impacts of climate change and the climate emergency become more prevalent, building a shared understanding of producers working with Consumers, I prefer to call them food citizens, local populations, uh, building that understanding, you know, from primary school right through the education system and more broadly across the population about where the food comes from 
uh, and why it's so important to uh, work with and support local producers is absolutely critical, and that um, is is what you know this kind of local food system marketing is all about. Surely, Nick, one of the most serious vulnerabilities is Israel and their bombing oh. and raiding of the country every couple of years. Well, of course, that's the terrible truth about this uh, situation, that it's, uh, it's an ongoing war since the Nakba of, of 1948. You know, the, the effective creation of uh, you know, permanent blockade and Gaza becoming a, an open-air prison, if you like, where people are not allowed you know, free movement and free entry, where what comes in to the, to the Gaza Strip is very tightly controlled and where, as you say, there's regular outbursts of, of violence and, and large-scale violence. You know, none of these issues will have a lasting resolution until that situation is completely and, and permanently addressed. And this is where GUPAP and, and the, the Palestinian movement is really calling for, you know, for a, a last and, and justing and, and full and complete peace for the restoration of, of all, the, all their rights, the return of occupied territory, the creation of the Palestine state and, and the fulfilment of the aspirations for the Palestinian sovereignty, and including food sovereignty. That's at the, the very heart of this conversation. Yeah, it must be absolutely devastating for the women farmers and for all the people when they see all their hard work destroyed. I mean, not all their work, but a, a proportion of their work destroyed by bombing. Absolutely. Um, and I've got statistics here provided from GUPAP. These are Ministry of the Palestinian Ministry of Agriculture that was released in, uh, in June this year following an analysis of the damage that was done to the food system of Gaza uh, following that, those May bombings. In total, they've estimated $126 million, that would be US dollars, in direct losses and damage, and then a further nearly $79, $80 million in indirect losses and damage. So we spoke about beehives before, $700,000 worth of damage to beehives, $500,000 worth of damage to small-scale livestock, you know, rabbit-keeping, poultry, including home-based backyard chickens, $4 million uh, damage to, to meat hens, uh, $600,000 damage to deaths of, uh, of cows and sheep, $400,000 damage to um, laying hens, uh, $1.5 million damage to fish, farming and half a million dollars damage to fish ships. I mean, these are some of the statistics that give you a bit of a glimpse into the loss and damage and hardship that was inflicted through that brief campaign of uh, intense bombing back in May. And that's where we in the developed country like Australia can do our bit to help to restore that. Absolutely. So, you know, our campaign, we're only trying to raise $25,000 and support 50 women through this campaign. But our call is to, you know, all people of conscience, all people who can, can empathise with the situation in Palestine and try to imagine just how difficult life is there for uh, the people under uh, these decades of, of oppression and occupation and now blockade and, and bombing, uh, who are only trying to live a dignified life, which is surely what, you know, all of us are trying to do in Australia or otherwise, trying to live our lives and, and to have food on the table and, and to be food secure. That's, you know, that's exactly what they're trying to do in Palestine, in, in Gaza. And that's what this campaign is about, to support them to realise those aspirations. They've, they've come to us and asked us for assistance. This is a request for solidarity. It's not a request for aid. Um, they've been very clear about that. They don't want 
a, uh, a handout. They don't want more food dependency. You know, they're, they're sick of you know being dependent on, on imported food and imported aid. They want the capacity to feed themselves. That's what food sovereignty means. That's what this campaign is about. And that's our uh, call to your listeners and to uh, all people who might hear this message in Melbourne and, and around Australia and internationally, small step in the right direction of a uh, true and lasting peace for a, a free and sovereign Palestine. And how do we help? You help by uh, visiting our website, sustain.org.au, where we've got full information on the matters that I've spoken about, profiles of some of the women who will be benefiting directly from this campaign, and then the, uh, the donations are through the GoFundMe campaign that we have launched. Thanks very much, Jan. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And as Nick Rose said, go to the webpage sustain.org.au and assist the women of Gaza. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is back for 2021. This year's digital festival invites you to take a journey with a series of thought-provoking films, documentaries and shorts. EFA 21 invites you to explore the world and connect with environmental issues beyond the headlines. Take a journey into the deepest seas, up awe-inspiring mountains and into the lives of those fighting to save our planet. Running from October 14 to November 14, visit EFFA.org.au for more. The Environmental Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. Twenty Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Today we focus once again on the Philippines with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. And Peter, it's not often we have a good news story regarding the Philippines. This is the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to Maria Ressa, sharing it with a uh, Russian uh, publisher. Well, it was really wonderful to hear that news because it shows that the, the Nobel Committee was attuned you know, to the really horrible situation in the Philippines and, and in Russia. It's a good news day, but you know, the real reason for it is, of course, a huge crisis in the Philippine society. And uh, the role of people like Maria Ressa really has to be applauded. They're very courageous. Um, I think when people saw her being interviewed following the 
surprised you could see the stress really in her face and also of course the, the real determination she has to not be back cowed bowed down or stopped you know by the terrible threats that, that just keep on coming what's her background peter that led her to take on this um task the main thing with uh, her is that she worked for cnn as uh, a asian bureau chief or reporter and then chief uh, back about uh, 15 years ago decided that the philippines needed a you know a strong online investigative journalist publication and she set up rappler i'm not sure of the year now i think around 2015 something like that so not so long ago virtually at the same time as duterte was emerging just a year before i think Will this prize make her any safer? Of course it will. In a way, she's she's sort of safe because already she's been hounded uh, legally uh, as well as, you know, with direct uh, abuse from the president. It's, it's a double-sided thing, you know. She, she's been given such a highlight in that sense uh, that everyone would know who did it if anything really violent happened to Maria. But... Uh, on the other hand, uh, once the president takes a, a real uh, hatred or anger towards a person, you know, anything can happen. So, you know, still, I think uh, even now, anything can happen. And all the other courageous journalists in the Philippines? Journalism in the Philippines is one of the most dangerous professions. And even in the world, it's one of the most dangerous professions. So I think uh, Philippines isn't the worst country for the killing of journalists uh, because of their work, but it would be like second or third, you know, after Afghanistan and Iraq, say, something like that. So, you know, it's a very um, tricky place for journalists. And as Maria Ressa was saying, you know, you can't do anything without the facts. You can't have truth. You can't have trust. Journalists are often just intimidated not to, you know, to report the non-facts, the non-truth, and, uh, you know, live, live that kind of professional life. They call it, you know, envelope journalism in the Philippines. So there's that side of it. And then, you know, people who don't conform or who get too close to powerful people involved in um, illegal activity, it, it's just shocking that, that they'll just be murdered. It's just shocking. Is there any good news on the UN pressuring the government? I can say that... Last Thursday, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, Michelle Bachelet, had to formally make a verbal report to the Human Rights Council about a few countries, four of them, and Philippines was one, and this was to report on the implementation of a decision last October uh, to provide technical and capacity-building assistance to the Philippines on human rights, which is very minimal sort of response to the situation we know is there. So she reported on how that was uh, had, had been advanced. Um, the agreement was, in the end, with the Philippine government, was only signed in July, so it took a long time to, to put together. But she then added her own comments that since October last year, when the resolution was carried, very many disturbing events had happened, and she expressed deep concern or being disturbed about massacres, uh, the red tagging, um, which is a term for uh, government officials, military and police officials 
using media of various sorts to say that somebody is a supporter or somehow is a part of the communist terrorist rebellion or armed movement and so on. Now, all the people they're naming don't have any weapons, of course. They're civilians. Often the red tagging will end up with an assassination. She went on to say, that's continued. It's really disturbing. It should stop. And with the election now in play, so there's going to be national elections in May next year, she called for the end of the red tagging. This language of uh, violence and division, she called it, for a free and fair election process to be assured. I think that was also very timely. Going back to your, your question, you know, directly, there is, you know, ongoing concern coming from the United Nations, but because of the votes and the decision of the actual Human Rights Council, which is the member states, it's limited to how much support can come. For people, you know, just doing what we would consider really routine civil work in, in, in our society, like uh, representing women or representing uh, environmentalists or representing trade unionists, the lawyers who represent them, church people who engage with those communities. All of those people are in danger. Is Michelle one of the many who's denied entry to the Philippines? Correct. It's not for a while that uh, President Duterte has made these angry sort of denunciations that he'll arrest these people from the United Nations, but he has never withdrawn threats to arrest anyone from the Human Rights uh, Commissioner's office, um, any special rapporteur who tries to visit the Philippines to investigate abuses. That's, uh, you know, a ongoing thing. And as well as that, he threatened to arrest the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Because of the uh, ICC uh, issue has advanced now, there is a bit more you know, ongoing rhetoric, but it hasn't been... Yeah, that sort of personal so far. But yes, that's that's the situation that anyone from the international community who criticises the Duterte government is uh, going to be blocked, blocked at the border pretty well. Your group's investigation, Investigate PH, has that gone to Michelle Bachelet? Has she read, read the three reports? Yes, she's received all three reports. Uh, the third one arrived on the first day of the Human Rights Council. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that her speech that she gave last Thursday was informed by that. We're still uh, seeking to have a discussion directly with her. So the council just finished on Friday, so I think in the next couple of weeks we may have an opportunity to have that discussion. Not official like a letter from her, but the feedback from uh, people from her office is that these three reports are unique uh, in that they bring together a wide range of, in of data and interpret it in a constructive, uh, helpful way. Whereas, say, you know, there's a very significant agencies like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, they make global reports on human rights, like annually, and they always have a section on the Philippines. But, you know, it's a few pages compared to the amount of material we've been able to put together. So I think it's contributed uh, a lot to people's understanding, and it's been received by the UN. Uh, High Commissioner's Office is a very helpful. Do we need to talk about the announcement by Duterte 
about his future in the government of the Philippines? What he did, he used a moment of uh, people nominating for the coming elections to say that he wouldn't nominate for the vice president's position after all. He had said he would. But uh, he praised it by saying, I am resigning, as if he was resigning now. But really what he was saying was, I won't be the president and I won't hold any office after June 30 next year. You know, it was a sort of uh, twisted expression, I think, of uh, his latest manoeuvre, which was to uh, avoid an obvious constitutional problem that he shouldn't and couldn't stand for vice president to open up a space where his daughter, Sarah, who's the mayor of Davao City at the moment, could uh, nominate for president. And I think this is what's happening. She won't be a good look for the Philippines? No, she's as tough as him. (laughs) Again, because he's been in the limelight uh, for these last uh, five years and a and a bit. She's been there in the background, but those few video clips you can find can show her as a you know really violent character as well, like she's a chip off the old block. There is a famous one where which I was just aired last week, which uh, she's confronting a, an official of the government uh, about an, an issue, and she just punched him in the face, right in public in front of the cameras. You know, I don't think her daddy did that ever. <laughs> so, so um, you know, I think I think she's uh, just as dangerous as him. You know, her role will be to carry on the policies of her father and uh, to protect her father from any uh, you know, legal actions or recriminations against him for what he's done. Do you, do you think about what the International Criminal Court is doing? I think that, um, you know, you can see that that's going to be part of her role, if possible, to um, protect him against the ICC in particular. How can she do that? Well, she can make it very difficult for the ICC to carry through the investigation they're doing. I, I know she, they, she couldn't stop, but say they indict him, find him guilty in his absence and so on, you know, she'll, she would do her best to make sure that no one can ever apprehend him. That means he's stuck in the Philippines, but yeah, that's it's a lovely country for someone with uh, millions of dollars. Yeah, I think that that'll be part of the plan. That sounds a bit like Marcos many years ago. It's all the same gang, um, Jan. So Bong Bong Marcos uh, is running for president. They've got all of this month to sort of shuffle themselves around. You know, who's going to be the running mate of who and so on. Yeah, it is an unpredictable situation. Uh, but I can say that in these last five and a half years, it's become very, very clear that Duterte is a very close ally of the Marcos family. He's he's really enabled them a lot in this period. I would say that he considers Bongbong Marcos, who is a childhood friend, really, should play a role in the future of the Philippines. And it's a very fraught uh, election process there, and I, I wouldn't try to predict really what will, what will happen. But you can be sure that the Marcos candidate, uh, Bong Bong, will make quite a show. And meanwhile, as you've pointed out in in um, papers, that the intimidation and worse facing unions and union members in the Philippines continues unabated. That's right. I think you can say that the whole repressive program is continuing unabated. 
this is a, a real feature of this last few years where the international community has put a spotlight on Duterte. There is really widespread concern and, you know, the sharpest has come at the UN Human Rights Council and at the ICC. But in all that period, the actual intensity of the outrages has increased. Even in this last few months, uh, I think Duterte, you know, cops uh, a direct hit, you know, of criticism. His, his uh, first instinct is to uh, up the ante and escalate. It means it's a very dangerous time. So in uh, union matters you just referred to, you know, I'm very, very concerned because uh, people that, you know, we uh, Australian unionists have met um, have been particularly uh, targeted in this period. And at the 2018 ACTU Congress in Brisbane, um, one of the international delegates was uh, uh, Enrico Dimaano, who's a, a member of the National Council of the KMU Labor Centre and the president of a union at... Uh, you know, a multinational food and uh, medicine company, Wyeth. It's a famous company now in the Philippines owned by Nestle. This year, the uh, latest bit of machinery used by Duterte, it's, it's got a horrible name, um, National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict. So the, these uh, people, who are basically police and army, came to his house and demanded that the union disaffiliate from KMU they threatened his family, that is, they threatened to kill them. So Rico resigned from the presidency of the union and the union uh, then had meetings to appoint a new president. These uh, National Task Force people turned up at the union meeting, like 30 of them, and you know, there was a, an argument there that they shouldn't even be there, of course. And then they went to the houses of the officers of the union and threatened them uh, that there will be a massacre, the same type of as of March 21, sorry March 7 this year, when nine uh, people were killed in the in the region where this union is. Unless they drafted the resolution to disaffiliate and raised a petition to disaffiliate by September 21, I think. You know, we've been uh, on the campaign about this to the Department of Labor in the Philippines, to the uh, ILO and to the Philippines government, to our government. Uh, come September 21, you know, so far the massacre hasn't happened. The union didn't disaffiliate, but it's uh, now moved to Nestle itself. So Nestle then straight after called a, a some sort of bonding session with one unit of the company. When they got to the event, um, they were uh, given a dismissal notice, so they were, they were given a month's notice, and they're on the end of October. They're finished. This, this is showing that Nestle, uh, which you know is a global giant, um, is directly you know involved with these repressive forces of the government to smash the union. And this gets, sort of gets deeper into the truth of the situation that the Duterte government and governments before, but the Duterte government is extremely hostile to any effective trade unionism. It's operating on behalf of big business um, and it's a completely wrong approach, of course. Really, it's illegal, it's wrong, um, but it's what they're doing. And it's not only this YF union, but there's five other unions which have been hit with the same kind of pressure, just not quite so advanced as what's happened at YF. 
and one of them is uh, is Nexperia. Um, it used to be Philips subsidiary in the Philippines. It's now owned by sort of a private equity firm. Um, and it used to be called NXP. Now it's Nexperia, and they make the computer chips for motor vehicles, all the systems we have in cars. And as you know, there's a sort of global shortage of these. You know, it's a pretty significant uh, production place in the global supply chains. There was a huge trade union struggle there five years ago, which was uh, a sort of historic one in that the union managed to uh, not only survive but create a you know, good environment for unions to form in all other um, businesses in that uh, export processing zone. So attacking an ex- or an Xperia union is also a very significant political uh, move. We're all very alert to this going on. And, and, you know, I'm sure your listeners are just amazed to hear me saying this sort of thing. But this is what it's like in, in Duterte's Philippines. Maybe we can end by saying because the, the starter's gun is fired on the elections, there's a whole new dynamic. So it does provide a lot of opportunities for change. It provides some protection for people, but it's it's true that uh, elections in the Philippines have always been very violent as well. So we should all be much more attuned, I think, if if we can, up until May next year, to uh, be ready to speak out about what's happening in the Philippines. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much, Jan. And I've been speaking with Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday at midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone, as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Let anybody... 
Every Tuesday at 9.30pm on 3CR, 8.55am, the Greek Resistance Bulletin brings you news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek, news from the anti-fascist and anti-racist front, and news from actions and political initiatives from below. Κάθε τρίτη βράδυ, 9.30 με 10, στον 3CR 855 AM, η εκπομπή Greek Resistance Bulletin σας παρουσιάζει στα ελληνικά και τα αγγλικά νέα από την Ελλάδα των κινημάτων, νέα από το αντιφασιστικό μέτωπο, νέα για τις δράσεις και τα εγχειρήματα από τα κάτω. Greek Resistance Bulletin, σπάζοντας το μονοπόλιο της ενημέρωσης. For the past five and a half years, Bob Phelps, Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, has presented a monthly half-hour segment on Tuesday Home Time, looking at all things environmental, and even before that he was an occasional guest on the program. Today we find out the origins of his lifelong work for a better future for us all and the earth we live on. I spoke with Bob yesterday and pointed out that we're all influenced by someone or something when we're young, good and bad, could be parents, teachers, peers, and that he was a boy from the bush, but not the Australian bush. Well, it was the New Zealand bush, and uh, it's rather different from Australia, of course, although living out here in the Dandenongs is a bit reminiscent of those times, the big trees and the, uh, the grass and the animals and the birds. Those are the things I remember from my youth before we moved into the suburbs, of course, and set up the garden. Our backyard in the suburb was always a, a very productive and verdant garden with the chickens there and a little orchard as well. It resonates now with kids learning to, uh, to garden in school. I think that that's really one of the great innovations is that they're in touch with the earth as well. After all, we're all dependent in the end on the earth. I, I suppose that's where I come from, really. Is that your parents' influence? To a big extent. My parents were country people. Dad had been on the farm a lot of his young life, didn't have a very happy time. And my mum, too, who was orphaned when she was only seven years old, had had a pretty gru gruesome time. So I think also that caring for them and about them and about the earth was sort of related in a way that uh, we need to respect other living creatures that we share the world with. And, and, and I think my parents brought that to um, our young lives as well. Dad said sometimes, you know, the earth was almost so good and nutritious that you could eat it. Were the teachers interested in those sorts of things? I suppose there are influences in school, but uh, they're not ones that stand out. I did okay in school and, and later in... Uh, university, but uh, I didn't like the institutionalisation of it, really. That's part of the reason, I suppose, that I've become an activist standing outside institutions and systems as much as I can for most of my working life as well. I have an uneasy relationship with uh, those organisations that try to push you into a certain mould and make you into a, uh, 
a workhorse for the wealthy and influential people in society. Just go back to your university days. Was it like here um, for a certain time we had free entry into education, into universities? Yes, it was. And in fact, that um, happened. I became a mature age student. And part of the reason for that was that uh, education in the 60s became free, as it did here. And um, that was pretty crucial for the baby boomers, really. Uh, and it defies description from my way to my way of thinking that uh, the people who were the direct beneficiaries of that are now so down on the younger generation, so unforgiving when it comes to the cost of education and not sharing it around. That's the reason I see that uh, the inequalities in society are so starkly re-emerging is because um, many, many people from the western suburbs and the north don't have uh, ready access to um, even affordable education and of course without that kind of start in life I think we're all um, a little bit behind the eight ball. Governments haven't really been fair and I don't understand why the beneficiaries of those systems can't see how unfair it is to deny the advantages that we had to the current generations as well. Of course those who are smart and um, motivated and resourced can still get good educations but it's a different kind of education now too, I think, very much focused on the meal ticket rather than a broad perspective on what it means to be human and where we fit into the world. Although it's, of course, very encouraging to see that some young people are also um, speaking up for themselves and for future generations, demanding intergenerational equity and saying, um, we're not going to take it any longer. Were those the sort of things that were happening at university while you were there? Were students active? Were they talking about issues like peace, justice, Māori issues? Yes, in, indeed. Well, uh, First Nations people of New Zealand, of course, at that time in the 60s were um, and, and remain actually second-class citizens, although things have improved a lot over the last 50 years. You know, it is a Polynesian society, really. Maori people are probably something like 20% of the population, which makes it very different from the situation here in Australia with the inequalities are, are so much more stark. I, I guess the burning issues were, the, um, were apartheid. Of course, the Vietnam War, hot issues. When I was at university from 66 to 1970, my particular focus was on the war and um, war resistance. That really was extremely influential in uh, making me into the lifelong activist that I became. When I arrived in university, I really wasn't very aware of the world. I, like most other kids, been um, focusing on uh, making money and acquiring possessions and so on. My experiences at university, outside the classroom, uh, really changed my life, I'd say. After coming over to Australia in 1972 and being hired to run the uh, first environment centre in Queensland, uh, my interest in the environment and peace became even more focused and uh, I've spent my working life uh, working on issues as an activist, augmented with a bit of other teaching and a few things like that, but primarily focused on activism take you back to those um, university days. Were you out on demonstrations, the clashes with police, 
all the sorts of things that we saw here in Australia do, during the Vietnam times? Uh, I don't recall the clashes with the police quite so starkly as here. I think the New Zealand police were a different, were certainly different uh, can of worms than Bjorgi Peterson's um, police turned out to be when I landed in Brisbane in 1972. You know, there were demonstrations, yes, very large ones and very influential ones, I think. But the climate of um, uh, government repression and the repression that the police exercised over the community uh, was very different indeed. Maybe I've got rose-tinted glasses on now because I think, you know, the activism of students and, and community, people who cared particularly about the war in Vietnam, uh, was on a roll. And uh, I think there was a lot of sympathy in the community and perhaps even in, in government as well for the view that uh, the Vietnam War was, well, the American war on Vietnam was not a war that we should have engaged in at all. Going overseas to fight other people's wars, as we've seen over the last, you know, constantly by um, Australian and New Zealand troops, has... Um, not been in our interests and not been fair or equitable to those people like the Vietnamese and the Afghanis and Iraqis that we've gone there to oppress. Of course, there are all the other ones, you know, the war in South Africa in the 19th century and um, in Korea as well, where uh, our behaviour and our intervention were counter counterproductive and overall negative. Were nuclear issues part of those demonstrations and activism? I think that was a little bit later, and I was already in Australia then when um, uh, in the 1970s we got together and formed the Campaign Against Nuclear Power, which of course has a, had um, nuclear weapons as a very central focus as well. So after forming the Campaign Against Nuclear Power in, in Queensland in 1975 or six, I was engaged there for a number of years in uh, in running that campaign as well. I feel like that uh, having been in, born in 1944, uh, I was born in the shadow of the nuclear bomb. So as a child, I'm sure I was um, not ducking and covering as the American kids were and became very, very acutely aware of the potential for nuclear war. We certainly, even down here in the Antipodes, uh, knew that uh, if nuclear weapons were all fired and nuclear winter followed to life on Earth uh, could certainly get very tenuous indeed. It was that threat that led me into the anti-nuclear uh, activism in the 1970s and up to the present day. I'm still engaged in playing a small part with another great group of people on um, anti-nuclear issues because... Uh, Nuclear weapons still pose an existential threat to the world with uh, now uh, weapons in the hands of eight countries, many tens of thousands of them uh, targeted on each other as well. So we're in a, along with climate change, the campaign that I'm most focused on, of course, is the genetic engineering of living organisms. Between those three things, really, we're um, talking about uh, the future of humanity really being rather tenuous and uh, uncertain. 1972, why did you leave New Zealand and travel to sunny Brisbane? Like a lot of things in life, it just happened by chance, really. I was um, eager to go and take a look at China. I don't know why, but I've had a, um, a very, very long 
interest in China and Chinese affairs as well. I landed in Sydney and ran into somebody who said, oh, you can use my room in Brisbane for a couple of weeks while I'm on holiday down here, if you like. So I hitchhiked up to Brisbane and uh, ended up being there for eight years once I became engaged with uh, with work and with activism uh, in the time of Bjorki Peterson, which it was very easy to fall into. Bjorki Peterson and his police, of course, were um, a force to be reckoned with, and um, they had uh, their techniques and methods for repressing um, Indigenous Australians. Uh, we were opposing the mining of uranium at Mary Kathleen in Queensland, and so we came into their firing line as well and it was actually our campaign that um, applied for the street marches that were then denied and for five years became a prime focus of the right to march campaign which embraced a whole range of groups um, who'd been looking for a focus around civil liberties and uh, the right to publicly protest and Bjorki Peterson of course used that as his way of getting re-elected, his law and order campaign was in direct service of his interest in remaining the Premier, having his corrupt police commissioner and forces in place to deny the community its rights to free speech and assembly. That, of course, became the principal focus when it would have been much better, to, I think, for it to have remained on the way that um, Indigenous Australians in Queensland were being treated on the nuclear and environmental issues because they were all under extreme pressure as well at that time with the Bjorki Peterson government uh, rampant. Bob, how did that police violence in Bjorki Peterson times impact on you personally? Oh, well, I spent a couple of times in jail and um, was arrested several times and it was a very trying time. I didn't realise it at that instant, but in fact, I, I think that um, like many activists, I, I really just burnt out. I've had a, a brief uh, visit to China um, over a, a, a Christmas holiday in 1978. A group from the Brisbane Girls Grammar School had been planning a trip to uh, China and it was approved so late that by then most of the uh, students had decided that they'd do something else instead. Uh, the leader of the group, Alice McCarris, asked around and recruited people to go. And my partner of the time and I decided that, yes, we'd love to go to China. And we did. Um, but then in 1980, we actually set off and spent the next three years in Asia, learning Mandarin and um, teaching English and just living in a totally different community. And chilling out for, for my part, really recovering from from that eight years of, of headbanging in, in Queensland. And I've never gone back there to live. It um, was um, just a bit too, um, too stressful. Uh, but it was a learning curve, you know, to realise that what had happened emotionally and psychologically, uh, that particular mode of life had uh, undermined my confidence and um, ability to function normally. And when I came back, I got involved in activism again, particularly around Europe, uh, nuclear issues. Um, the rest is history since then. Wondering, Bob, which countries you actually went to in Asia? We lived in Taiwan most of the time, spent a fair bit of time in Hong Kong, 
uh, toured China a couple of times, mainland China, you know, Singapore and around, Southeast Asia, really. What did I see there? Well, I was averting my gaze from the politics of the time, really, uh, because <laughs> I'd been burnt by the politics in Queensland and just wanted a bit of a rest, I think. So just worked um, teaching English, which was, you know, a good thing to do and um, became acquainted with uh, Chinese society, but better, made some friends there and so on, um, and just slowly recovered um, before returning to Sydney and getting involved in the anti-nuclear campaign again on behalf of the Conservation Foundation, which ultimately, and of course, uh, Peter Garrett was running in the election of that time for the Nuclear Disarmament Party in New South Wales, um, became acquainted with him and, and the band. So when um, later in the in that decade, uh, when the opportunity to set up the um, uh, gene ethics campaign around genetic engineering came up with money from the Midnight Oil album Species to Ceases, I, I got the job of... Um, running gene ethics, which I've now been engaged in since 1988. My more permanent activist profession, I suppose you could say. What is the Gene Ethics Network? Who is part of that network? Well, we're a network of um, concerned citizens, really, who have, have got um, enduring worries about uh, the manipulation of life on Earth, including all living organisms and uh, human beings as well. So it crosses the whole spectrum of the use of uh, novel gene manipulation technologies. As I said, we've been going since 1988. There's a lot of interest and concern over farming and food, of course, but also now with the development of new techniques in 2012, for instance, the CRISPR genetic engineering technique um, has opened up a whole raft of um, new uh, scientific and technical ad adventures uh, particularly by corporate entities that want to produce new products. So the CRISPR techniques are being used to create new organisms from scratch uh, in synthetic biology. And the biggest project of that kind in Australia is being run out of Brisbane by the CSIRO in cooperation with a number of different uh, commercial partners. Things like um, gene drives for eliminating feral animals and other organisms from our environment that happen to give human beings trouble also being done um, out of the high security laboratory in, um, in Geelong uh, and in the University of Adelaide. So that, of course, is funded by the US military. So <laughs> really, the, the techniques and technologies of genetic manipulation and engineering have uh, undergone a revolutionary change over the last, last decade and we now see that um, the prediction of this being the biotechnology century is not far from the truth that uh, those innovations are make, going to make huge differences along with um, uh, artificial intelligence and uh, bionics and a whole range of other technologies converging uh, over the next couple of decades I think to make a very different society from what we have now unfortunately the values that go along with that are also going to i think very much more challenge and diminish our rights and we all already see that uh, they're under challenge in a number of ways that our so-called freedoms 
and our privacy and the, the things that we have tended to value as individuals are now being reduced, constrained. I think we're, we're headed for um, a very different situation uh, as a result of the kind of right-wing neoliberal values and attitudes that are rampant and are still very influential around the world. Um, meanwhile, the rich get richer and uh, everybody else stays where they are. We can't go on supporting, unless we want to uh, end life on Earth, uh, consumer society also has to change. But uh, I, I don't know, people are just not ready for the uh, for the idea that we have to stop using plastics and polluting the world, that we have to stop using synthetic chemicals on our, on our farms and food that are poisoning us and the rest of the world, and that we shouldn't be engineering living organisms and allowing the patenting of seed and the other parts of our very diminished and threatened environment. We just need to recall that there is no life on Earth if we destroy it, and human beings have embarked on a, uh, a holocaust, really, a, an environmental holocaust that um, we see evidence of in, um, in global climate change and the destruction of forests and ecosystems, both at sea and on land, Somehow or another, with a very large human population, we need to reorganize society to make ourselves sustainable and regenerative. We're operating in overdrive and uh, the world can't continue to produce two or three planets worth of uh, consumables, which is what we're doing at the moment. The Gene Ethics Network, is that an Australian network or are you also connected with similar groups overseas? Well, yeah, there are um, groups around the world really concerned about um, similar issues to our own, and we're certainly connected with them. Um, we're connected across the Tasman most intimately and into the Pacific, but we do have worldwide connections as well to um, really wake people up about what's happening in the genetic engineering technologies and the product that industry wants to produce as a result of those things. One of the debates that's going on at the moment is about fake food, particularly meat, milk, and really the modes of production of our food are really going to be quite a critical question because uh, our agricultural lands are under pressure. We have um, particularly poor soils in Australia. Soil is being lost. Water availability is being constrained everywhere around the world. Even just feeding ourselves is going to be a challenge, although there is enough food to feed everybody now. If we had equitable um, distribution systems and the sustenance of life were available to everybody as it should be, but it's used as a political and strategic weapon by governments, I think uh, the future of food and farming really is a big issue because it also contributes very dramatically to the global climate change everybody is so concerned about. We need to really work on seeing the connections and that makes our campaign global rather than local or as well as local. You've worked with many people over the years, Bob. I'd imagine that you've made lifelong friends as an activist. Yes, and, and they're around the world and some of them are very high profile, but the vast majority are, um, are unsung heroes. You know, activism and uh, the activist life is, um, 
is a frame of mind as much as anything else. And um, it would be great if a lot more people were activists, I think, even if we just spent five minutes a day or a quarter of an hour a week doing something to make our society better and to think about what the real challenges and issues of our society are and expressing those to our family, our friends and neighbours, work colleagues. That's the important thing. We need to be an activist society. You know, we live supposedly in democracies, but we see the corruption and the the self-interestedness of those who are at the, the top of our um, governance systems coming home to roost sometimes. You know, Berejiklian going and Barilaro going last week and then the Austrian Premier resigning over the weekend uh, because of his um, appropriation of um, of the community's resources. And we're, we're in a time of dictatorships around the world, but we nominally live in a democracy where we're supposed to have a say, where we can have a say, where we might be able to make a difference encouraging people to actually speak up and to envisage and work for the kind of society that we want, a fairer society, a more just society, a society that respects everybody, whether you're a migrant, as we all are, or Indigenous Australians. These are the kinds of values and aspirations that I think we all should have and that if everybody was contributing to making our rather imperfect democracy work better and calling out those who are um, operating on self-interest and grabbing more than their share for themselves, then I think we might have a better society. Uh, We've, of course, during this COVID lockdown time, been very challenged, but it's kind of distressing to see that uh, as soon as the lockdown is lifted, as it was last night in New South Wales, people are rushing to resume their, in inverted commas, normal lives by exhibiting the same kinds of behaviours of consumption, acquisition and self-interestedness as they did before. You know, I think many of us had hoped that this pause might have um, got people thinking about maybe there are better ways that we can do things and there's certainly been many Zoom conversations over the last couple of years about how we could redesign our society to be better. But there's still resistance. You know, um, We can't get our leaders to set up a corruption commission federally. They're not in the right frame of mind, and neither are we. And, and it's a change of mind that is needed, a change of culture that's needed if we're ready to build better societies that um, do sustain the life of humanity and and other species on this planet into the future because I do think that things look very bleak otherwise there are going to be more pandemics we are going to have to meet new challenges of um, constrained resources like food into the future and we need to do that better we need to stop destroying and polluting life support systems on which we absolutely depend for our survival Let's keep those conversations going, keep trying to uh, make things better and um, get off the consumerist and neoliberal values bandwagon that we seem to be on. And thanks to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. 
This is Iri Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Help make 3CR's Trans Day of Audibility broadcast happen. Donate on Give Out Day this Friday, October 15th. Give Out Day is a national day of giving to LGBTIQA plus organisations, community groups and projects. Donations on Give Out Day are doubled by Give Out and their partners. That means that your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. 3CR's Trans Day of Audibility broadcast will bring together a range of queer programmers and presenters to showcase and celebrate underrepresented voices for Trans Day of Visibility in March 2022. Your donation will help elevate and amplify the voices of trans communities as part of this dedicated special broadcast. To donate, just head over to giveout.org.au forward slash 3CR Community Radio before the end of Friday, October 15th or check out our socials or our website at 3cr.org.au. For more information about Give Out Day, check out giveout.org.au. Give Out is a 3CR supporter. Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us Poster Design Prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. It's been described as a debacle. Communities facing serious risks, people are angry, sceptical and fearful. I'm talking about the way governments in Australia have managed the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on citizens throughout the country. I'm speaking with Debbie Brennan from Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party, whose recent paper is titled Privatisation and Pandemic Profiteering. Time up for a system that started the crisis and can't stop it. Debbie, that's a rather alarming conclusion. What are your arguments? What the problem that we're facing right now comes from is the fact that we're fighting a pandemic, which of course was caused by the global capitalist system. It's a system that doesn't have the capacity to solve it. And the reason it doesn't have the capacity is that it is based on running everything solely for the purpose of profit. How we've seen it being played out here in Australia, but it's hardly unique to Australia, 
is that everything about COVID strategy, including vaccination rollout, has been handed over to the private sector. This is an outcome of decades of neoliberalism, the privatization of services. So where decades ago, we would have had a very dynamic public sector, including a public health system, we don't anymore. It's been starved. The entire public sector has been starved, and it's just living on a shoestring. As a result of that neoliberalism happening, here we are with a highly privatized you know, economy and services, which is in charge of fighting COVID. But the problem is that, for example, the Morrison government has been handing over the running of the of the hotel quarantining for that's just one example. They've handed over uh, how to deal with the aged care crisis last year to a private consultant. And of course, they're handing over everything to do with the vaccination rollout to big corporations who are making massive profits. And the contracts for these uh, handovers are, are secret. But even though they're secret, we don't know the exact amounts. We don't know the terms of these contracts. We know that they're into the billions. We certainly know what the outcome is. We've seen the schmozzles over hotel quarantining over, you know, aged care, and certainly saw the schmozzle over the, the rollout of the vaccination. We only need to remember what happened last year when the, the only vaccine that was, you know, made available was AstraZeneca. No other vaccines were available for so long. And here we have only a population 60 and older who are um, eligible for becoming vaccinated relatively recently that the rest of the population under 60 has been able to get vaccinated. And even then, with the AstraZeneca being the only thing on you know, the scene for such a long time, there was that big question about its safety, the blood clotting risk. So that, that's what we're watching, is the private sector running the show and they're running it purely for profit so that these tensions, these fears, these, these horrible situations that people are facing shows that people really, our safety doesn't actually, it's a secondary part of the picture. And then, of course, we've got the police and the army making sure that we're behaving properly. They're the ones enforcing the, you know, the, the health restrictions. That's the problem. I want to come back to the police in a moment, but do you believe there's any one state that's done it better than the others? No, I don't see one. Um, I see all of the states, states and territories here, and you're talking about Australia, are you? They're all floundering. Um, they're all at different you know, degrees and stages of, of this going on, but they're, they're all floundering and they're all focused entirely on getting the economy going again, which is the, the buzz term, which, of course, is opening things up for business again. And when that is the priority 
then people's health and safety becomes secondary. Focus now on the police. We've seen the response of the police to the far right, maybe not so much in the early stages, but lately. The left has usually been at the other end of the, the sticks and the, the bullets of the, of the police. Where do you think this is heading with the police? I think in a very sinister direction. You're absolutely right that um, those of us who have been part of the anti-fascist movement in uh, you know a few years ago, as you say, were at the, the other end of the, the baton and the um, pepper spray. While currently the far right who are hitting the streets have been, you know, at the end of it. I think the issue is that the police powers and the police violence is escalating. And we are also seeing a clawing back of anybody's protest rights. So when we see the police doing what they're doing in controlling the far right on the streets, we should be thinking that that's us the moment we hit the streets again. What we're watching, and this is what is getting really, really ominous, is that we have seen Victoria police actually fire bullets. They're doing that now. They're bringing military tanks into the streets. And so what we're watching the escalation of the militarization of the police, which has been going on for quite some time. That's what we are facing. Sure, the far right is copying it at the moment, but I think we also need to keep in mind that the far right is not what the police and the capitalist state are worried about. They're worried about us who are in the union movement, us who are in the left, those of us who do protest for justice, and they're worried about us coalescing and gaining traction. So in a way, I think we're probably watching a, a testing ground. And I think many people have been asleep over the last years while this militarisation of the police has been going on. Well, the police have been working very hard Governments have been working very hard at painting the police as community-minded, there to look after community safety. That's been the rhetoric for as long as I think any of us can remember. When we were on the streets, you know, fighting off fascists, we were the violent ones and the police were there to protect the community safety against us. Now they're, you know allegedly protecting against, um, well, the far right, but they're also picking people off the streets who are in the wrong place at the, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And all of that is done under the cloak of protecting community safety. So I think that rhetoric has been absolutely going full steam ahead for so long that it takes hold probably now that we're in a period of, you know, a period of time when people are hurting much, much, much more than just a few years ago, that when our capacity to get back out there and protest, and I say that 
we would be doing it in a, a safe way as, as we do. Uh, but when we do, we're going to find that more people are going to be at the butt of the police. So I think that consciousness that you're referring to is going to be raised very fast. Can I take you back to the demonstration outside the offices of the union movement a couple of weeks ago? What were your thoughts when that was happening? I mean, it was a shock. What I was thinking at the time when it was hitting the news was, all right, we know that the far right has been organizing um, for some time. We know that they have been able to play on the very legitimate fears and the very legitimate, you know, anger and desperation of people. Um, we saw how large those protests were over the last several months. Here's the far right that is organizing. But when we saw the attack on the CFMMEU, we saw the far right attacking the union movement. And not only that, we know that there were union members among them. So that is telling us that the far right has been making inroads into the unionized population, including the construction industry. We're kind of seeing, we, we know that the CFMMAU has been under the gun for decades. We know that big business and, you know, the capitalist state have been at them for decades. Now we see the far right coming on board. The union movement itself is caught off guard. I'm not seeing a fight back within the union movement. We're hearing words of shock coming from the leaderships, the officialdom of the union movement, but I'm not mobilized as a unionist and no other unionists are being mobilized in some way to start countering this. It's really showing the weakness of the union movement at the moment. So it's telling us that we, when I say we, I'm talking about all of us as, as, as workers, all of us who are oppressed by this system we need to be looking at a response. We have to respond. Do you also see it as the success of the system being able to isolate that union so that people aren't coming out and supporting them? I would certainly see that as a factor. And again, that, that's the case because the rest of the union movement has not come to the defense of the CFMMEU. I remember when the, the Builders Labors Federation was under attack and being deregistered in the 1980s. And the rest of the union movement, well, I'm not saying everyone, but a, a, you know, a good significant section of the rest of the union movement was letting the BLF hang out to dry. So, yes, it's, it's, the, the, the CFMMEU has been under a concerted attack, a very vicious concerted attack for so long. We have to defend them. And not only that, what we're watching is it's not only the CFMMEU that's now being attacked. At the same time, we saw the far right 
attacking health workers trying to do their job. And we are also now, we see coming out in the news that fake unions are being set up and they're targeting specifically all the different sectors of the health services. I see that as part of the attack too on the union movement. And that's being run apparently by liberal national party segments of of the coalition. So there is a very concerted attack going on at the moment. Just one other thing I, I would throw into this too is that the thing that's so ominous about it is that when we see the far right working to build a movement, a movement that goes against the union movement, a a far-right movement that goes against the left, when we see this buildup of a movement, this is how fascism begins. This is the signs of the building of a movement that's set to attack the union movement and the left. And I will add in this picture that my two organizations that I belong to, the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women, our organizing center, Solidarity Salon, was the butt of the far right just this week. There was this huge graffiti painted on our front window saying, Vax kills. That is an assault. We were singled out. We need to be seeing these signs. We need to be expecting more of this. And we need, as I was saying before, have a response. And I'm happy to talk about what I think that response should be. But we we need to, because this is getting really, really serious. Can you give me an example of one of those fake unions? I understand that up in Queensland, there's like a, a, a red, they call it a red union network. And so there are all these associations popping up, like a nurses association, ambulance drivers association. I read about it recently, actually. Um, and I, oh, the ACTU um, has come out and warning about this as well. That's what's happening these little associations that are calling themselves unions, they're attracting people in these professions to join. They're quite small at the moment, but they're masquerading as unions and they're, they're picking up on people who are disaffected by wherever they are now, whether it's the union they're in now or whether they're not in a union, but they're prepared to join something like this. Have you heard of any threats or violence against individuals at this stage? No, but um, I would think that that would probably be part and parcel of the escalation of assaults on the union movement and the left. Well, let's turn to your responses to what you've been talking about. Where are we heading? There are two connected fronts to this. Uh, One front is to be 
organizing around real vaccination, universal, I'm not saying mandatory vaccination, I'm saying universal vaccination so that nobody is left out because we know that there are many who have been left out of vaccination. We need to be looking at, well, reversing the privatization. We need to be looking at redirecting public funding from the private sector to the public sector. And in fact, Radical Women uh, has initiated a petition to the federal and state and territory governments addressing this very thing with very practical, concrete demands, such as ceasing the outsourcing of responsibility for planning and implementing vaccines, stopping the, the, the um, outsourcing to the private consultants and big corporations, and instead fund and train and support an expanded public health service, public health vaccination and contract um, vaccine contact tracing and so on. We need to stop the outsourcing to the private sector. We need to redirect all funds that are going to the private sector, redirect them to resource the public sector at all levels from hospitals down to community sectors. We should set up a publicly owned vaccine manufacturing facility and to have that facility run by the vaccinologists and the um, scientific researchers and the manufacturing workers. In fact, Australia once did have a publicly owned pharmaceutical body which is now the CSL, the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, which was privatized by the Keating government back in the 1990s. And now it's this multi-billion dollar corporation, which is contracted by the Morrison government to be developing vaccines here. Well, that should not be happening. We should, be, we should have a publicly owned vaccination facility. The other part of this, too, Besides the redirecting of funds to the public sector, basically deprivatizing these services, we need to ensure that everybody is able to get vaccinated. So um, there's talk that, you know, First Nations communities are now a priority. Well, they have to become a real priority. Prisons need to become priorities people with disabilities, those who have been ignored all this time need to be made a a genuine priority where the vaccination needs to go to them, be culturally sensitive, interpreters are needed. Everything should be thrown at providing this for for those in the community who have been ignored. Um, Also, all frontline workers should be vaccinated. They should, they should not be left out. Workers on temporary visas should not be left out, regardless of, you know, visa status or citizenship status. Everybody should be able to get vaccinated. The barriers have to come down. 
So that's got to be addressed, and that is being addressed in the petition. In the petition, but another important part of this is that it's got to be global, and this is where, you know, the federal government here, it's being told in this petition, fight for global vaccination, fight for an internationally coordinated program of vaccinating everybody in the world. I read a shocking statistic recently of less than 20%, this is globally, less than 20% of the low-income countries of the world are vaccinated. They're just not even getting their first jabs. This is really quite critical. There's no way that we're going to be safe in Australia or any other country in the world if the rest of the world is being infected because it's not being properly vaccinated. So that global, that global solution is the ultimate solution. But there's the other front, and it's the far right, fighting the far right and defeating the far right. While they appear to be organized, they're still very loose. Um, they're still quite fragile. We need to jump on this. And this is where we really need to form a united front. And by united front, I simply mean that organizations, left organizations, unions, um, community organizations, we have our own different perspectives on different things, and we keep those different perspectives. But we come together around agreed principles that we all agree to that are centered on eliminating the far right and outright defeating them. And of course, in all of this, the union movement is absolutely crucial. We need to be taking things like this petition and this call for a united front into our unions, at our workplaces, um, in our local union branches as rank and file members, as delegates. We've got to be building up our union movement. That's really what, um, and I'm speaking for the Freedom Socialist Party in, in these ideas, as well as our sister organization, Radical Women, because those are the answers. We need to go to the source of the problem. We've got to dig deep, see what the source of the problem is, and, and tackle it. Where is the petition? Anybody can find the petition on the Radical Women Facebook, Radical Women Australia. So go there on Facebook. Or if um, you're not on Facebook, email Radical Women, and that's Radical Women, one word, at optusnet.com.au. And we would be more than happy to get that petition out. It's interestingly, we got a whole spate of signatures just the other day from New Zealand. Had to be in response to the Ardern government's switch of policy from eradicating COVID to living with COVID. So there seem to be a lot of people very angry in New Zealand right now, and they jumped on that petition. Jump on this petition, and actually Radical Women is going to have our, our next sort of planning 
meeting. We launched it last week. It was great to see people come on board, take it away to take into their networks, get signatures. We're having a check-in and planning meeting on the 19th of October. Everybody's invited to that. So again, either email Radical Women or go to Radical Women's Facebook page and get that information. Okay, thanks, Debbie. Thank you, Jan. And I've been speaking with Debbie Brennan. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.